Julie Wilson Black is a minister in Alexandria, next to Washington, D.C. She preached at Bitlochry Church of Scotland and included a story about her experiences visiting Perthshire's big trees. Trees breathe in carbon dioxide and produce oxygen in its place. We breathe in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide. So we have this incredible relationship with trees, and even the inside of our lungs resembles a tree. So I've been thinking about trees because we have been walking in Perthshire big tree country, and I understand that this area is well known for its trees. On the back of this brochure, it tells me that Perthshire Big Tree Country is, has Scotland's most spectacular trees and woodlands, where there are lots of different experiences to discover and enjoy. So we have been exploring some of the big trees in this part of the country. Last week, we went to Dunkeld and walked among the big trees near the cathedral that were planted by the Duke of Athol along the river including the parent larch, which was one of five trees that was brought here in the 1700s. The seeds from that larch tree have gone on to populate all of the larch trees in the country. So it was astounding to see that parent larch tree. We also are hoping to go see the Fortingall Yew, the 3,000-year-old tree not far from here, Europe's oldest living thing. And we're also looking forward to seeing the Burnham Oak, the sole survivor of the Burnham Wood, made famous by Shakespeare in Macbeth. So there are many trees of note in this area, but all of these trees are part of what uh, enables us to live in a healthy environment. And it reminds me that in scripture, we also hear of trees spoken of as living, breathing things. A little later in the service, we're going to sing a hymn based on Isaiah 55:12, For you shall go out in joy and be led back in peace The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. All the trees of the field shall clap their hands and join us in praising God by doing what they were created to do, breathing in carbon dioxide, breathing out oxygen, just as we are praising God by doing what we have been created to do. So, as you go out this week, take note of the trees around you and remember that they are part of the creation that God has made to live always in praise and glory.
Stephen grew up in Perthshire but spent many of his holidays on the west coast of Scotland. Today he celebrates the Celtic Christianity of the Western Isles and evokes the wonder of staying on the island of Col. The poems that I've, I've swirled together over the years have been very much defined by Celtic Christianity and by that western edge of the world. Thinking of Iona and Ireland, the west of Ireland in particular, the early Celts coming over in these waves. That's, I think, at the heart of it all for me. The way that spirituality was at that time, or I imagine it to have been, much, much closer to the natural world. Much less distinction between living and faith. They were somehow bound up together in my mind. We've We've really split them off from each other in in the modern world. It was a simpler, simpler way of life, and I suppose that's what I'm trying to trying to key back to and key into. This poem is entitled "Island," and it's remembering the years in which we went off from Perthshire, going out as a child to the Hebrides in the summer months, and stayed in a cottage on one or other of the Inner Hebrides. This poem in particular is remembering our first magical year on the island of Col. Island. I remember what it was like to barefoot that house, wood rooms bleached by light. Days were new voyages, journeys, coming home a pouring out of stories and of starfish. The sun never died completely in the night. The skies just turned luminous. The wind tugged at the strings in the grass like a hand in a harp. 
I did not sleep. Too glad to listen by a window to the sorrow sounds of the birds as they swept down in skeins and rose again, celebrating all that was summer. I did not sleep. The weight of school behind and before, too great to waste a grain of this. One four in the morning, at first lark song, I went west over the dunes, broke down running onto three miles of white shell sand, and stood. A wave curled and silked the shore in a single seamless breath. I went naked into the water, ran deep into a green through which I was translucent. I rejoiced in something I could not name. I celebrated a wonder too huge to hold. I trailed home, slow and golden, dried by the sunlight.
Mary Haddow was Minister of Pitlochry Church of Scotland for 10 years until she retired last Easter. Today she talks about the Leaning Tower of Pisa. In August of the year 1173, work began on what would become one of the most famous towers in the world. A freestanding eight-storey bell tower for the Cathedral of the City of Pisa. The tower was to be 180 feet tall. There was just going to be one little problem. The builders were going to quickly discover that the soil was much softer on one side of the building than they had anticipated, and the foundation was far too shallow to adequately hold the structure. And sure enough, before long, this whole structure began to tilt. And it continued to tilt until finally the architect and the builders realized that nothing could be done to make the Leaning Tower of Pisa straight again. Construction was halted for almost a century, mainly because the city of Pisa was continually involved in wars. But slowly over the years, the building continued, and it was done in three main stages. And during that time, many things were done to try and compensate for this tilt. The foundation was shored up. The upper levels were even built at an angle to try and make the top look as if it was straight. But nothing worked. The tower was finally completed in 1374, almost 200 years after it was first begun. And it stood at an angle for over 835 years. Today, it leans almost 18 feet away from where it should be. That would be 10 degrees from the vertical for the engineers amongst us. And one day, experts say it will actually fall, all because it wasn't built on the right foundation. Jesus, as a carpenter, knew all about having the right foundation. The parable that we heard earlier of the wise and the foolish builders comes at the conclusion of what most people consider to be the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is filled with theological gems, the Beatitudes, the Lord's Prayer, Seek first the kingdom of God, store up for yourself treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart shall be. And that's just a few. But the sermon ends with an illustration, a simple but profound story of two men who each built a house. And the story begs each of us to ask this question of ourselves, what kind of foundation are we building on? For you see, Jesus wasn't talking about building a literal house. He was really talking about building a life, building a life that is meaningful, a life worth living. Now, as I said, Jesus was a carpenter. He knew a lot about building, but he also knew a lot about human nature. He knew how easy it is to hear things, to listen to them, to agree with them, and then go out and do not one thing about them. And so he told his story to show the necessity of doing as well as hearing. He was highlighting the fact that it's not good enough to know. It's not good enough to agree. What you hear, you must use. You must put into action and make it part of the foundation of the life that you build. The first thing that Jesus is saying to us in this parable is that we are all builders Every one of us is building a house. 
and it's a lifetime job. Building a house of personality and character. Everything we do, every word we speak, every thought we have goes into the structure. We are building a life. And in the parable, Jesus said that some are building wisely and some are building foolishly. And there's a further fact that this parable makes clear. Not only does everyone build their own house, everyone must live in the house that they build. Everyone must live with themselves. It's said that the one person that you cannot run away from is yourself, and we all know that to be true. All of us are builders. All of us live in the house we build. And here's something else this parable makes clear, that every house someday will be tested by the storm. Now, the people that Jesus was talk- were talking to were often witnesses to sudden downpours during the re- rainy season in ancient Palestine. Dry riverbeds, you see, would suddenly turn into quickly violent torrents in just a few moments of time after a cloudburst. According to Jesus' story, when you combine these torrential rains and raging streams with substandard housing that often included dried mud in the building material, and all of this sat on a shifting foundation such as sand, then you have disaster on your hands. Now, as insightful as that is, Jesus is not actually teaching a parable about how to build houses in safe areas. There are no storm-free zones, as we've all seen over the past month or so. This is a parable about the foundation for life, not about avoiding the weather or what it throws at us. What Jesus was saying is that when the pressure intensifies from all angles, the outcome is determined by the foundation we're sitting on. Jesus was saying that when the storms of life hit, it's good to know that you have got the best foundations available. Jesus expected the people to be smart about life, to be careful about the priorities that they built their lives on, to be cautious about who they listened to and what philosophy of life they chose to live by, because a wrong decision in these foundational areas would prove to be their undoing when the pressures and forces of life began to mount. The storms of life will miss none. No life will be immune from the storm. Or to use Jesus' illustration, the storm beats on every house. Malcolm Guite spoke at the 2019 Abbey Summer School in Edinburgh. Malcolm is chaplain of Girton College in Cambridge and has written several books of poetry. Here he reads his sonnet about the saint who left Ireland and came to Iona, Columba. I experienced something of an epiphany, a sudden sense of connectedness and intuition, uh, standing on the shore at Glen Columkeela, from whence Columba set sail for Iona. Um, I stood there when I was 19, and not a believer at the time, but... I suddenly felt um, called and drawn by something about this saint whose name, Colm, is also woven into mine, Malcolm. So, Columba. You called me and I came to Colm Keeler to learn at last the meaning of my name. 
Though you yourself were called and not the caller, he called through you, and when he called, I came. Came to the edge at last in Donegal, where bonfires burned and music lit the flame, as from the shore I glimpsed that ragged sail, the spirit filled to drive you from your home, a fierce dove racing in a fiercer gale, a swift wing flashing between sea and sky. And with that glimpse, I knew that I would fly and find you out and serve you for a season, my heaven hidden like your native isle, though somehow glimmering on each horizon. Jaris Nixon has written a series of thoughts, especially for this programme. Today she talks about God the Creator. Ever since I was a little girl, I've loved the beauty of the natural world. My mother taught me this. She was an amateur artist and a great lover of nature. She also loved God, as one loves a kind and generous father. Once, when she was old and quite ill, she told me how that love began. I must have been about four, she said, her eyes taking on that abstracted look of one gazing back down the years. My mother took me for a walk to the woods on the hills above the village where we lived. I remember my short legs being very tired when we got there. And then I saw them, a great carpet of bluebells under the trees, I'd never in my life seen anything so blue and so beautiful. I suppose I must have seen my father painting the woodwork in our house because I asked my mother, who painted the flowers that colour? She replied, God did, of course. I loved him then, and I've loved him all my life since. The 6th century saint, Columbanus, said, Understand the creation if you would wish to know the Creator. Whether you believe in the literal truth of the description of creation in Genesis, I think that most Christians would subscribe to the concept that behind all the beauty of the universe is a great creative mind, the mind of God the Father. So, let's attempt to follow the saint's advice and explore what the creation tells us about the Creator. The first thing that always strikes me is this. Why did God bother to create at all? Why that great cry into the void, let there be light? I think that the answer is that creativity is the essence of our God and he glories in it. We can see this when we consider the sheer variety and abundance of creation. Did you know that there are 4,810 species of frogs alone? that there are between 15 and 20,000 species of butterfly and 10,000 species of birds. Thank God for the internet. Doesn't this tell us about the creator's sheer delight in creation and the tremendous imagination that powers that delight? And consider the attention to detail. I'm sure we've all at some time looked closely at the sepals of a flower or the myriad of shades on the feather of a bird. Look at the miracle of your own hand. Those elements of blood and bone and nerve and muscle and skin that come together to create a perfect instrument exactly fit for purpose. What kind of mind could conceive the miracle of a human hand? 
our finite minds can only respond with awe and reverence when we contemplate the immense intelligence behind the natural world. When we think how it all works, whether it's our own bodies that we're considering, all the delicate interconnecting chains and balances that constitute an ecosystem. Contemplating the abundance and beauty of creation poured out before us also shows us how generous our God is. All this for our delight, to please our eyes and ears and nostrils and fingertips and taste buds, to give us food and medicine and shelter. We can only thank and praise him for his bounty. As Elizabeth Barrett Browning tells us in her rather turgid poem, Aurora Lee, Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. Something else, considering the natural world, also makes us realise how powerful our creator God is. Are you ever awestruck by the immensity of the night sky? I am. And I always remember that wonderful line from the hymn, The Servant King, hands that flung stars into space. This is our God. When I see pictures of volcanoes erupting, I think of the line from a psalm. He touches the mountains and they smoke. This is our God. That same power is there in little things too. The poet Dylan Thomas calls it the force that through the green fuse drives the flower. Think of the power that drives a shoot to thrust its way through the soil from a tiny seed. Think of the force that compels an acorn to grow into a huge tree. Our God is powerful, and we should never forget it. The book of Genesis tells us that God made us custodians of the natural world. One side of the coin is that he provides it for us. The other is that we take care of it for him. Humankind has failed in its custodial role. I don't have to enumerate for you all the ways in which we've exploited nature rather than cared for it, how we've greedily destroyed natural habitats, upset natural balances, and brought the world nearer and nearer to environmental catastrophe. From our Bible reading, we know that the Lord loves his creation. Genesis tells us that at each phase of creation, he looked and saw that it was good. He knows when even a sparrow dies. Psalm 84 paints a wonderful picture for us. The sparrow hath found a house and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Surely we all of us, in our different spheres, need to be very careful how we treat the beloved works of our generous and all-powerful Creator God. Turn up.